What's up, guys? Thanks for tuning in to the Athletic Lab Audio Inventory. Hey, guys. Greg here from Athletic Lab. Uh, today, we're talking about reactive strength as a tool for predicting and monitoring performance, kind of as a performance indicator. Uh, we're going to look, <clears throat> look into the mechanisms behind reactive strength ability and kind of use this uh, to suggest some considerations for training. So the main, main two mechanisms that I want to talk about here uh, that go into reactive strength ability are going to be tendon stiffness and neuromuscular efficiency. So as we dive into those a little further, tendon stiffness is going to refer to its, its viscoelastic properties uh, or uh, its compliance. So if we think about it in terms of a rubber band, so a new rubber band is going to be harder to stretch, it's going to take more effort to stretch, and when you let go of it, it's going to have a more elastic response. So it's going to come back to its normal shape quicker. Um, now, a worn out rubber band uh, is going to be just the opposite. It's going to take less effort to stretch it, and it's going to come back to its original shape with uh, less force as well. So um, the, the new rubber band is more like a stiff tendon. It's going to have less compliance um, than the old rubber band or the, the compliant tendon. Okay. So what actually gives the tendon more or less stiffness is uh, basically the quality of the collagen fibers, the, the density of the fibers, and actually even the orientation of the fascial fibers. So there can be, there can be changes in each of those three things to, to lead to more or less stiffness. And it's largely a product of the way that the tendon is loaded over time. So tendons that express greater stiffness and less compliance, um, overall, they're going to necessitate more energetic loading and result in greater elastic response or more energetic unloading during propulsion. So this is, we're talking about the stretch shortening cycle specific, a lot of times to plyometric activities and things like that. The second point we want to talk about is neuromuscular efficiency. So what I am referring to here is um, mainly improvements in contraction timing, contraction type, and contraction magnitude. So there's some research on this showing improvements in the breaking phase of, uh, of a plyometric activity, as well as the initial stages of propulsion. And uh, to get more specific on that, um, the eccentric force generating capacity um, during the breaking phase uh, was improved with training for reactive strength in these studies. So there's, the, there's an increase in the magnitude of contraction uh, eccentrically to slow down or stop, to slow down the momentum on landing. Uh, the change in the initial phases of propulsion was actually a, a shift in contraction type from concentric to isometric. And you might be thinking, why would you want to be isometric during you know, the initial stage of propulsion um, when you want to be trying to get somewhere. Well, what they actually postulated, the researchers, uh, was that this delayed concentric contraction actually was allowing more of a tendon response. So that isometric contraction allowed the tendon to respond uh, in the elastic way more before the concentric contraction took over for propulsion. Um, so this led to basically a more efficient energy storage and release into propulsion. 
And these, these changes actually in these studies were all without an increase in maximal isometric strength. So there's a clear neuromuscular learning um, during training that resulted in greater reliance on the tendon. So the two points actually go hand in hand where when we train for reactive strength, we get more efficient and that efficiency actually leads to a greater reliance on tendon, which means that we, there's actually more of a need for that tendon stiffness to store and release elastic energy. Now, in order to use reactive strength as a way to predict performance or monitor performance, uh, we have to have a way to test it. Now, the most common way to do this is going to be through protocols that are yielding an RSI value or reactive strength index. Uh, so this a simple ratio of contact time to jump height or sometimes contact time to flight time. Uh, the two main protocols that I want to go over here are the drop jump test with incremental heights and 10-5 jump test uh, repeated jumps. So both are going to have, uh, they're going to be slightly different in execution and also in benefit of what you can actually get information-wise from the test. So the drop, the drop jump test is basically performed the same as you would do a depth jump. Uh, the landing on the ground is going to be actually to a contact mat or a force plate or even just on the ground but using some accelerometer type device like a, a push band that can measure velocity. Um, and this is going to be done again starting from a box, falling to the ground, jumping as high as possible with as short a ground contact time as possible. And it started at one box height, find an RSI value, move to a higher box, find an RSI value, et cetera, et cetera. And the benefit of this is that we get a really good picture of an athlete's eccentric force generating capacity um, over a broad range of basically landing forces. So the higher the box goes up that we fall from, the more landing forces, the harder it's actually going to be to turn that into a short ground contact time and a a large jump. So we can use it to assess the eccentric force generating capability, even to some extent stiffness. So if we think about it this way, um, an athlete who has their best RSI values at a relatively low box is going to have pretty good stiffness, really good uh, fast contacts, but is not going to have the eccentric force, uh, the fast eccentric force capability that's necessary to fall from a greater height and still jump high with a fast ground contact. Um, in, in contrast, an athlete who has their best RSI value at a higher, relatively higher box is also still gonna have good stiffness. That's kind of a prerequisite for, for reactive strength, but they're gonna uh, be set up in such a way that the higher landing forces are actually gonna help them to have a greater elastic response off the ground and obtain a higher jump and still maintain quick ground contact. So that's going to be someone who's going to have, um, in general, you can say that they're going to have a better reactive strength capability. Now the 10-5 repeated jump test is a little bit different. So this time we're doing multiple repetitious jumps. So either um, this is usually on, again, a force plate ground uh, contact mat or using wearable device. Um, it can be either 10 jumps, 5 jumps repeated, rhythmic jumps, uh, one after the other. So this is actually going to be good for, maybe better actually for uh, assessing multiple effort stiffness, uh, maybe even uh, an athlete's rhythm in plyometrics, and also the ability to make inset adjustments. So 
the one thing about this test here is it's constrained to some extent by the height of the previous repetition. So say on my second repetition, I got up to 30 centimeters off the ground. My landing distance for the third repetition is now 30 centimeters. So you can only land from as high as you were able to jump on the previous rep. So constraining to some extent the amount of landing force, uh, it's, it's very individual in that manner. So because we can't go to higher landing forces outside of what an athlete can actually jump for height on this test, um, potentially, especially for, for more advanced athletes, it might be less of a test of eccentric force generating capability and more of stiffness. And the inset adjustment that I was kind of alluding to is in relation to finding a rhythm. So on, say, for 10 jump, repeated jump test, a lot of athletes are actually finding their best values toward the end of the set. So they, they kind of start to get in a rhythm. They start to gain more and more, um, more height off the ground, which allows them to have greater landing forces, more elastic response. So they'll, they may get their best repetitions toward the end of a set. Um, so they can, they can kind of adjust one rep to the next, um, their, their pre-contact stiffness of their ankle, knee, hip, etc. Uh, the way that they feel on each jump, they can uh, have a little bit of time in the air to think about their next contact. So that's that inset adjustment that um, for, especially for multiple effort uh, stiffness information, we, we get a little bit different outcome versus those single effort drop jump test. And both of these tests can actually have a lot of value to us in predicting performance outcomes as well as measuring improvements or um, kind of monitoring performance. So some research here on RSI testing actually found it to be the best predictor of 30 meter sprint performance above counter movement jump, uh, rebound jump, and even back squat. Um, and, and a lot of other studies are just showing a more a general ability of the RSI value to measure the effectiveness of effectiveness of the stretch shortening cycle, which we know is applicable to um, almost all athletic movements. So the evidence is basically suggesting the RSI is at least capable of predicting some performance outcomes and isn't can be an indicator of reactive strength improvements, certainly. And because the RSI value is dependent on two variables, uh, which would be contact time and flight time, um, it, it's quite sensitive to worth, worthwhile changes in performance because a slight change in either variable can have kind of a compounded effect on the, the outcome or the RSI value. And so earlier it was mentioned that um, reactive strength is quite dependent on neuromuscular control. So this means that kind of managing fatigue of central nervous system can show its effect in RSI scores. So for this reason, a lot of people are using RSI testing as essentially a monitoring system to essentially measure neuromuscular fatigue, predict readiness, um, things like that. Now, we need to talk also about training considerations for reactive strength ability. Uh, we, can, we can use all these testing protocols and things like this to, to find, you know, to, to monitor our athletes, but the reality is we really, at the end of the day, when we're talking about improving performance, we need to improve reactive strength ability, not just test it. So the way we do that um, is first and foremost to talk about maximal strength. 
So the role of maximal strength in the development of reactive strength is basically coming down to improvements in rate of force development and eccentric force generating capacity. So while the, you know, things like eccentric force uh, relative to explosive movements is largely influenced by the timing, coordination of, of fast eccentric contractions, the capacity of the tissue to produce force is, is still underlying. So there's our maximal strength. And similarly, um, the expression of rate of force development is dependent on the capacity for initial force production. So we have to be able to produce force to be able to produce force fast. So some research actually supports that um, when the time available for a stretch shortening cycle is less than 0.3 seconds, uh, which would be considered for the most part a fast stretch shortening cycle, rate of force development is more of a deciding factor in performance than maximal strength. But we want to keep in mind that maximal strength and resistance training specifically for maximal strength supports the development of rate of force development. So for this reason, we can regard max strength as sort of a catalyst for improving explosive efforts through improved rate of force development and a kind of a necessary foundation for the ballistic training, ballistic type of training necessary to improve our faster eccentric force, which is going to lead to better reactive strength. And basically what all this comes down to, if we boil it down, is practicing that which we hope to improve. So doing so in a sensible and progressive manner is obviously the key, but we want to do plyometrics and explosive activity and elastic activity to be able to improve in those areas. And we need obviously a foundation of good stiffness and good strength, but when we have those, we need to we need transfer to these other areas of RFD, uh, fast eccentric capacity, and ultimately reactive strength. So we need to practice the, the explosive movement that we ultimately want to improve in. And finding the, the area where your athletes are better or worse through some of these reactive strength index testing protocols is going to be helpful to know where to start. So an athlete with um, that's a little bit more advanced, has well-established stiffness um, during very kind of low-level activity, may be ready to progress on to higher load eccentric landings to be able to develop the ability to maintain that stiffness through this high load activity. Now, another athlete who lacks fundamental tendon stiffness is going to initially benefit from some higher volumes of that low-intensity repetitive contact to develop tendon stiffness is going to be necessary for any other type of higher loading plyometric activity. And ultimately, we want to keep in mind that these RSI tests that were, we talked about earlier are standardized basically to take place in the sagittal plane. Um, and mo most team sports are going to spend little time isolated in any one plane of, of movement. So it's important to kind of understand that the bilateral sagittal plane reactive strength testing protocols are a good indicator of general stre stretch shortening cycle capability. Um, but in terms of the rigors of team sport where we're changing direction and, and being explosive through different planes and different rotational uh, patterns and positions, um, we have to keep in mind that the general ability of stretch shortening cycle is important, but it's not necessarily specific to the movements we might make. So for that reason, we want to use RSI testing as 
um, a monitoring system if necessary, and a general guide through the exploration of more complex plyometrics and to give you an idea of where to start, how well we're progressing, and um, what weaknesses might be while prescribing plyometric activity and explosive movement and ballistic training or whatever is necessary that is um, in your context specific to what your athletes need. And no matter the need of the athlete, there I just want to go through a few important considerations when we're just talking about progressing plyometric activity for the improvement of reactive strength. I'll just kind of list them off without going into too much detail. Uh, if you have any questions on it, feel free to ask me. But first here, tendon stiffness is going to underlie all levels of react reactive strength expression. Next, load absorption capacity, such as what we'd see in a depth drop, should be developed before elastic energy storage and release, what we would see on a depth jump. Next, plyometric intensity is determined by a few things, such as the height of the fall, the stiffness of the contact, single leg versus bilateral um, contact, and the presence and speed of any horizontal movement during that exercise. Next, we want to think about keeping a good balance between contact time and flight time to ensure the appropriate load and an adequate stimulus for what we're going for. Um, basically, we're referring here to fast stretch shortening cycle versus slower stretch shortening cycle. Next, neuromuscular efficiency may improve very quickly, but tendons are, tend to adapt more slowly. So in terms of advancing load in plyometric activity, be patient. Next here, frequent RSI monitoring itself is a fast stretch shortening cycle plyometric stimulus. Even if you're only doing five or less repetitions, if it's frequent, we need to account for its load and especially during obvious fatigue states. And lastly, we want to try to accumulate a higher volume of low level plyometric activity early on in our training period and then shift in emphasis toward lower volumes of higher intensity, higher load plyometric activity later in the training period. So just to quickly kind of wrap up the things that we talked about, the underlying mechanisms, remember, of reactive strength ability are tendon stiffness and that neuromuscular learning toward proper contraction type, timing, intensity, and what's, what's underlying all of that um, in practice is high levels of maximal strength ability, which are going to set us up for a capacity of re rate of force development and eccentric force generating capability. And training for reactive strength is going to take uh, many forms, mostly um, in the form of power development or plyometric activity, ballistic training, or even, as we've mentioned, maximal strength development. But the few key principles that we went over there are going to keep you on the right track for the most part. And just to kind of remind yourself, testing for reactive strength index is a reliable way to measure progress. It shows validity in predicting performance outcomes like 30 meter sprint time. Um, and it also is uh, sensitive to worthwhile changes in performance because of its dual variable um, input to outcome. And RSI testing is certainly a plausible readiness monitoring tool because of that. Finally, reactive strength is the topic of many conversations in the field right now, and the pool of research is continually growing. Its power as a predictor of high-performance activity is, uh, is improving, 
And I think rightfully so, because in my opinion, it is one of the most important uh, performance indicators for explosive activity. Thanks guys for listening here. If you want to reference anything or dive into more detail about any of the information covered here today, uh, there's an article up on elitetrack.com about reactive strength as a performance measure. You can type that right into Google. It'll pop up for you. Read that through. Leave any comments you'd like. Comment on this uh, podcast here if you'd like. Love to hear your questions and thoughts and chat about anything you feel necessary. Thanks. All right, guys, that's it. Thanks for listening. If you like this, you can rate us. You can share this with your friends. And if you have a question, go to Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, Anchor, anywhere you can find us. Drop us a DM and we'll try to answer it when we can.